Welcome to Pick 6 Movies, where each season we pick six different movies that fall under one common theme. We give you some insight behind how, when, where, and why each movie was made. And on top of that, at no extra charge to you, you get a full review of the movie from me, Bo Ransdell, and my co-host, Chad Cooper. This time on Season 1, we are looking at the films of Turd Ferguson, a.k.a. Burt Reynolds. This time around, Chad has offered us up 1989's All Dogs Go to Heaven, a movie that so desperately wants to be a Disney film and yet doesn't quite make it. But enough for me. Chad's going to tell you all about it, so let's get started. Don Bluth was born in El Paso, Texas in 1937 and was the grandson of an early leader in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When Bluth was a boy, he would ride his horse to the movie theater where he fell in love with the early animated films of Walt Disney. These movies led to a passion for animation and a lifetime of drawing and illustration, eventually leading him to make his own feature animated films. In 1955, after Bluth spent a year at Brigham Young University in Utah, he left school and took a portfolio of his artwork to the Disney Studios in Burbank, where he was hired as an assistant animator. Bluth was put to work on the Disney classic Sleeping Beauty, but just two years later, he left the studio to take a mission trip to Argentina for the Mormon Church. Two and a half years later, Bluth returned to Los Angeles with his brother Fred, and the two opened the Bluth Brothers Theater. The theater was located in an old supermarket in Culver City, where he stayed for two years, but then eventually returned to college to finish up his degree. Bluth's passion for animation could not be ignored, and he eventually returned to the animation business, joining the company Filmation in 1967, and finally returning full-time to Disney in 1971. Bluth worked on such animated classics as Robin Hood, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2, The Rescuers, and he directed animation sequences in the live-action animation-infused feature film Pete's Dragon. Despite all of this success, on his 42nd birthday in 1979, Bluth and 16 of his fellow Disney animators left the company and started their own animation studio. They were upset with the way that the Disney company was running and had a desire to return to the classical animation style of the studio's early classics. And thus, Don Bluth Productions was born. Don Bluth Productions' first feature film was The Secret of Nim. This was an adaptation of the 1972 Newbery Medal winning novel Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. The movie was released in 1982 and was met with positive critical reception However, good reviews don't pay the bills, and due to a lack of promotion and some stiff competition at the box office, the film didn't perform as well as hoped, and this led to Don Bluth Studios eventually filing for bankruptcy. Not to be deterred, Don Bluth formed The Bluth Group, which created the wholly original video arcade game Dragon's Lair, which leveraged Laserdisc technology and allowed the player to control an animated cartoon character on the screen. It was also the first arcade game to cost 50 cents. And I say this from personal experience. At the time of its release, it was mind-blowingly awesome. And unlike anything anyone had ever seen, it was a huge success. 
it led to an incredibly successful follow-up arcade game called Space Ace, which leveraged the same interactive animation technology. But then, the video arcade business crashed, and without a steady stream of quarters flowing in, the Bluth Group filed for bankruptcy in 1985. Bluth decided to return to the world of feature animation, and his partners teamed with businessman Morris Sullivan and established the Sullivan Bluth Studios in Van Nuys, California. But they later moved the studio to Dublin, Ireland for financial reasons. It was at this time that Don Bluth teamed up with a scrappy young director named Steven Spielberg. The two delivered the animated mouse-centric tale of immigration, an American tale. This movie was a huge success. It became the highest-grossing non-Disney animated film of all time, taking in $45 million in the United States alone and over $84 million worldwide. Now, this film was followed by the dinosaur-themed The Land Before Time, which served as the next collaboration between Bluth and Spielberg. This movie eventually spawned 13 direct-to-video sequels, each as best as I can tell have the exact same plot of dinosaurs walking from one place to the other. Bluth and Spielberg parted ways when it was time to pursue a movie idea that Bluth conceived after finishing his original feature film, The Secret of Nim. The treatment for this idea was originally about a dog who was a private eye, and it was going to be a segment in an animated anthology of three short films. The character was a scruffy German shepherd and was written specifically with one actor in mind. That's right, Burt Reynolds. Due to the previously noted financial troubles of Don Bluth Productions, the idea never really made it past the storyboard phase. However, things were different now, and the concept was revived by Bluth and was built around the title, All Dogs Go to Heaven. The movie drew inspiration from such films as the Jimmy Stewart holiday classic, It's a Wonderful Life, and Spencer Tracy's World War II aviation film, A Guy Named Joe. All Dogs Go to Heaven had a title that came from a book that was read to Bluth's fourth grade class. Bluth resisted suggestions to change it, stating that he liked how provocative it sounded and how people reacted to the title alone. The idea of a family-friendly animated musical feature that has a lovable scrappy dog is something everybody can get behind, especially if the dog is violently killed in the beginning of the movie. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The film did land Burt Reynolds to voice the lead character and Dom DeLuise, who had previously appeared with Reynolds in five other films. This included Smokey and the Bandit 2, Cannonball Run 1 and 2, The End, and The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. DeLuise also provided voice work for Bluth in both The Secret of Nim and An American Tale, so everybody kind of knew everybody going into this production. In All Dogs Go to Heaven, Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise recorded their parts in the studio together. Now, this was a practice that was not normally done in American animated films, but Bluth agreed to this request and allowed Reynolds and DeLuise to ad-lib a lot of their dialogue, and he later said that much of their ad-libbing was often better than the original script. Now, we'll go into this movie's plot a little bit later, but I want to take a moment to briefly introduce the narrative of this family-friendly animated musical. The movie starts in New Orleans in 1939, where our canine hero, Charlie B. Barkin, voiced by Burt Reynolds, and his pal, double ugh, Itchy Itchiford, voiced by Dom DeLuise, escape from prison, I, I mean, the dog pound, where they immediately return to the Riverboat Casino, which is run by Charlie's old business partner, Carface Crothers. 
Now, Carface convinces Charlie that they should split up the casino business and Charlie should leave town. This plan involves Charlie taking his half of the profits to start his own assumingly alternative corrupt enterprise. But before he can make his way in the world, Charlie the dog gets really drunk and then he is murdered by his ex-partner Carface. Jailbreak, casinos, intoxication, murder, that is all before the end of Act 1. Buckle up kids, it gets worse before it gets better, and then it gets worse again. Now, as you might expect in a movie like this, there should be an orphan. And you're right, there is an orphan, a doe-eyed little girl named Anne Marie, who can talk to animals. Now, she was voiced by child actress Judith Barcy. Judith began her career in television, appearing in numerous commercials and on the NBC sitcom Punky Brewster. She later appeared in the movie Jaws the Revenge, and she had previously worked with Don Blue, providing the voice for Ducky in the animated film The Land Before Time. By the time she was in the fourth grade, Judith was earning an estimated $100,000 a year. However, her father, Joseph, was an alcoholic, and as her career blossomed, he became increasingly angry and routinely threatened to kill not only himself and his wife, Maria, but also their daughter. Joseph was arrested multiple times for drunk driving, and in December of 1986, Maria reported his threats and physical violence toward her to the police. After police found no physical signs of abuse, she decided not to press charges against him, and Joseph decided he was going to stop drinking. But he continued to threaten Maria and his daughter Judith with violent threats. Young Judith confided in a childhood friend that her father threw pots and pans at her, resulting in physical injury. Her father's abuse resulted in Judith visibly gaining weight, and she exhibited strange behaviors, which include plucking out her eyelashes and pulling out her cat's whiskers. Judith eventually broke down in front of her agent during a singing audition for All Dogs Go to Heaven. This breakdown drove her mother to take her daughter to a psychologist where Judith was identified with severe physical and emotional abuse. Child Protective Services got involved, and only when Maria said she was planning to divorce Joseph was the investigation dropped. That's what she said she was going to do, but she didn't. Judith Barcy went for a bike ride on July 25, 1988. That evening, her father reportedly shot her in the head while she was sleeping, and then he murdered his wife, Maria. He reportedly spent the next two days wandering around the house, and in a phone conversation with Judith's agent the next night, he said that he intended to move out for good and just needed to say goodbye to my little girl one more time. He then poured gasoline on the bodies and set them on fire. After incinerating the bodies, he went to the garage and shot himself in the head. Don Bluth reportedly modeled much of the animated Anne-Marie's movements and facial expressions on Judith. He'd also planned to feature her in more upcoming films. Bluth said that Judith was absolutely astonishing and noted her ability to take direction related to complicated subject matter and situations at such a very young age. Let's move beyond this. The role of the movie's murdering villain, Carface, was voiced by Vic Tabak whose most famous role was diner owner Mel Sharples in both the 1974 movie Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and the CBS television series Alice, which ran from 1976 to 1985. You may remember him by his signature catchphrases, You Stow It and Flow Pickup. Carface's sidekick, Killer, was voiced by Charles Nelson Reilly, who was primarily known for his work in the theater and as a regular panelist on the 1970s game show Match Game. 
Most recently, Charles Nelson Reilly was immortalized by Weird Al Yankovic in a White Stripes-inspired song, CNR, where Charles Nelson Reilly is portrayed as a larger-than-life badass a la Bad Bad Leroy Brown or Jim, whom you don't want to mess around with. As production of All Dogs Go to Heaven neared completion, the studio held some test screenings as they are wont to do, and it didn't go well. It turns out that gambling, drunken, ex-convict dogs being murdered was a little too intense for young viewers. It was decided to shorten one particular sequence where Charlie has a nightmare about being contempt to burn in hell for all eternity in the name of commercial appeal. Don Bluth reportedly owned a private 35mm print of the movie with the cutout scenes, but the print was eventually stolen from Bluth's locked storage room. The movie opened over the Thanksgiving weekend in 1989, and with all this good mojo in its favor, it had to debut at number one, right? Not exactly. All Dogs Go to Heaven opened up in sixth place at the box office, right behind another little animated feature film, Disney's The Little Mermaid. All Dogs Go to Heaven received mixed reviews, and most critics noted the lack of good characters, disjointed plot, and forgettable songs. Critics also noted that much of the film's content wasn't appropriate for children, most notably the previously mentioned mature subject matter including, but not limited to, drinking, gambling, smoking, violence, death, and hell. But other than that, it was good to bring the kids. Legendary movie critic Roger Ebert gave All Dogs Go to Heaven a positive review and praised its vibrant colors and animation style. However, in his review of the film, he does mention that he prefers The Little Mermaid over All Dogs Go to Heaven. Although the movie didn't perform well in theaters, it was wildly successful on home video. It spawned a sequel and a television series and a Christmas special that recycled Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Don Bluth wasn't involved in any of the sequels or the spinoffs, and Reynolds only appeared in the original film, although it should be noted that Dom DeLuise played Itchy throughout the entire franchise. Right about now, I know what you're thinking. Is All Dogs Go to Heaven any good? Is it true that all dogs do indeed go to heaven? What about that ghost dog from The Nightmare Before Christmas? Does he go to heaven? What about Hitler's dog? What about Dog the Bounty Hunter? Well, there's only one way to find out. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I give you All Dogs Go to Heaven. So let's jump into it. For this episode, we have All Dogs Go to Heaven, the 1989 animated feature film by uh, Don Bluth uh, et al. I want to say just at the get-go, I have never seen this film until we decided to um, tackle it for uh, for the show. I was... the deeper I dug, the, the more amazed I was with with what I was uncovering and finding. Well, I yeah, I, I agree, and I had the uh, the benefit of watching this movie for the first time with you in person. Granted, I was tired; I was a little hungover, but uh, I got to experience all dogs go to heaven. Uh, in in the way that I feel like it should be viewed, which is a little logy, <laughs> and and also with someone that is saying, 
about every 15 minutes, okay, pause this for a second. Let's just think about what's going on right now. It is. It, it is. It is an amazingly just disjointed, tragic, just just broken, incoherent movie filled with reprehensible characters that has no like like moral point or redeeming value at the end of the film. So I watch it with you and I have a good time at the end of the day. It was, it was kind of a fun experience because of how ridiculous the movie was. And then I was forced to watch it again by myself when I'm, I'm taking so- notes on this thing. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I know how that is. I don't know where hate crosses the line into righteous <laughs> hatred, All right? but I'm, if I'm not over the line, I am certainly righteous hatred adjacent and I, I hate this movie. It is everything about it is wrong. It's an affront to God and man. But here's the thing that, that if you came back and, and you were indifferent about the movie, we wouldn't have anything to talk to or, or talk about over the next hour. The fact that you have that hatred means we're going to probably have a good time. So let's, let's yes. just, let's jump yes. into it. And, and here's the thing I want to, I want to say on the onset. I thought about this a lot is that when, I watch any Don Bluth movie. It's a lot like that fake version of Rock Ridge in Blazing Saddles where they replicate a real town, but with like this two dimensional fake town that when you get up close to it, it seems completely um, just absence of any life and energy. And and where the parallel is that, it, that even as I mentioned in the intro, you know, Don Bluth seemed to really model his career after the life of, of Walt Disney. I mean, it really followed in many of the same footsteps that it had been uh, laid out by his predecessors. But when I watched this movie and not only this movie, the secret of Nim or, or even the land before time or um, you know, other works that he's done an American tale, they all seem to be following um, a similar pattern, but there's something about them that just feels sort of absent of humanity or heart. I don't know if you feel that way, especially with this film. This film is just devoid of of, of any sense of goodness, um, it, it, although it, it really seems to try. It's yeah. I mean, it's aiming for Disney. Very obviously, we'll talk about. We'll talk about them when we get to Anne Marie, but like Don Bluth is like, you know what? We're opening on the same day as the Little Mermaid. Motherfuck Disney. (laughs) He's putting his all dogs go to heaven dick on the table and comes up sorely wanting it. Yeah, but like his other movies are are sort of equally. I, I, I think this is the worst of them, as I recall. Um, I think I thought uh, Secret of Nim was kind of creepy, if not good. There, there's something sinister about it that I, I kind of liked. And again, this is going back 20 years, so who knows? But uh, that, and I thought, uh, you know, an American tale. American tale too is, in my memory, as it rests, is a very entertaining movie. Yeah, I don't think he had anything to do with that. Probably not because it was he didn't. good. There was a lot more Steven Spielberg in that than there was Don Bluth. I mean, I have to go back and yeah. kind of, you know, check the, the, you know, the, the internet machine for that one. Yeah. It, it always seems like they're sort of, you know, shooting for what Disney did, but, but it almost seems though that Don Bluth is, is undermined by 
his own deliberate decisions, again, as I, as I noted in, in sort of the introduction, is that he really even took comfort in the fact that people, you know, tend to bristle to at the title of All Dogs Go to Heaven, which, fun fact that I didn't mention, the original title for this film was Let's Throw Puppies Into the River, Here's a Big Bag. But they felt that was too many characters to go on the market. <laughs> yeah, so. it's tough. To, well, if you're double featuring it, sure. It's, it's going to be rough. So let's let's just jump into the plot. So we start off our movie. It's 1939. We're in uh, uh, New Orleans. And our, our, our two characters, Charlie B. Barkin and Itchy Itchiford, are, are breaking out of the dog pound, which is just a different way of saying prison. And, and one of the things that I really had a... a, a a hard time reconciling in this is sort of where are the boundaries of what the animals can and can't do or should or shouldn't do. So what I mean by that is that, you know, itchy initially comes out and we're seeing that he's really good with tools. You know, he's using this jackhammer. He's, he's kind of got, you know, kind of like, he's sort of the, you know, the safe cracker, the one who knows how to, you know, to get him out of prison. And, and in their, their escape, um, there's this, you know, this joke that he's colorblind and, you know, and, he, and they're saying, you know, but dogs don't see color, which is factually incorrect. And then they, they end up breaking a pipe, um, which floods these tunnels. So uh, my first thought was, why didn't they just dig around the pipe rather than have to, to power through the pipe t- to make their escape? If I may address a, an earlier point you made, if Itchy Itcherson... Mm-hmm. is using a jackhammer this should be a world populated by nothing but animals if they can use tools they're not animals anymore so you're saying it's basically a fever dream of richard scary <laughs> yeah yeah uh essentially yes there is no reason why they can't just work around it and also there is the initial of that uh dom de burt reynolds banter uh the whole like it's red. I'm, you know, you're colorblind. And, yeah. I, you know, oh, everyone knows water mains are green. You're just like, oh, God, yeah. just make this stop. This is going to be really good. Yeah, so, this is going to be terrible. But all right, so as they're breaking out, my question is, is the pound run by people? And if so, why do they have spotlights? I think the answer to your question is, yes, the pound is run by people. Because after they break the water main and the water, rather than drown them, helps them to escape by pushing them up to this, you know, raising Arizona-esque mud hole that, <laughs> that, they, that they pop out. And, and again, I don't know if you've ever visited your local dog pound or not, but I think if a dog were to get loose, what they would not be met with is violent gunfire in an attempt to, to kill them so that they don't leave the pound. And that's yeah. what happens in our film. Yeah, he's making a break for it, boys safety's off dude and they're shot at a lot it's not just like one or two like there's some some random guard who's just like kapow kapow i mean it's like raining down gunfire on these two dogs saying like you know what i will be damned if i let you escape because like i would rather see you dead than free outside these horrible prison walls let's 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 be honest came straight from robert altman's popeye with their slanted roofs and 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 sort of you know tilted gutters. I also like that on the the, the roof of of one of the uh, the buildings, it's painted New Orleans Dog Pound. Now look, I am certainly a big fan of of show don't tell, and I don't know where this particular detail falls. Are you showing me that it's the dog pound? Are you telling that me it's the dog pound? 
Or are you basically predicting Katrina where you're anticipating a huge flood and as helicopters or safety flies overhead, you're like, oh, you know what? Don't worry about the dog pound. Let's go save people instead. Yeah. I mean, it was later purchased uh, to, for use as a Bond villain's lair. So, so, one, so, so once they've escaped the dog pound, that's where we're met with opening credits. All dogs go to heaven. And then we throw a little halo over the, the title. And then the halo goes, you know, and it, 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 it tinks over like it's a broken halo. And you're like, well, you know what? These are going to be some fallen angels. You know, yeah, let's like, see what these dogs get up once to. Once they're dead. And, and again, I want to go back to what I didn't really understand about this movie. Again, what are what are the, the parameters of the world that where do animals live and where do people live in this world? So Itchy as a character, he wears a red hat and a blue shirt, and he's good with tools that we've already talked about. He also has fleas and he itches a lot. And then he's voiced by Dom DeLuise, who is constantly doing his Lou Costello, I'm scared, you know, voice of with a lot of a <laughs> Yeah, You know, like th- this sort of affect. And what I really thought about was I went back to, to years back. It reminded me of on the old uh, NBC sitcom Facts of Life, where there was a character named Tootie, who is the only um, African-American character, which really made her stand out in, a, in an all-female uh, boarding school of, of white, uh, you know, young ladies. But in the original series, Tootie was not only uh, African-American, she had a name of Tootie, she had braces, and she wore roller skates. And it was one of these things of like, you know, how many... Like, like, like yeah. gimmicks. Do you need to give a character to realize like, mm, I don't know which one you're talking about. You know what I mean? Like you remember the, the little dog? Mm, I don't know which one, the one with the fleas. I'm not sure. The one with the tools. I don't know what you're, the one with the hat and the shirt. I don't know the one who weaves a lot. Oh yeah. Yeah. That one. I know who you're talking about now. It's like when, uh, they put on that doctor show recently where it was like Doogie Hauser Cause the kid was real young and he was autistic and it yeah. was like, that's too much. That's too much to take in. Right, right. Make them autistic or or young, but don't combine them. Yeah. Well, you know what? You know, just just keep piling on until uh, you know you hit a breaking point. Right. Like an astronaut with irritable bell. Right. That you know, and and, and a stutter and a walleye. <laughs> you know, and two left feet. So also agoraphobic. That's too much. So, so after we've broken out of prison, um, where do our two convicts go? Uh, but back to their, their place of business, which is a casino. And one of the things I noticed in this film is that when, when they're going back to the casino, which is in a swamp, there are these signs up. And one of them says, um, you know, it says Carface and Charlie's. And then they they just mark out the word Charlie's. And it's, it, honestly, I got to say, look, that's bad branding. Do you know what I mean? Like everything about your business uh-huh. says something to the customer. And if you're just marking out Charlie's, it, 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 it I don't think it's presenting this particular casino uh, in the most favorable light because everyone knows Charlie's in prison. They, and everybody later on, we learn loves Charlie. So it's, it, 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 I don't think it's working in their favor, but the one brushstroke of, of the, the introduction of this casino that really stood out to me is that there are signs that say gators stay out and <laughs> no gators, which made me think, Again, we're talking like the the 1930s, all right? So are dogs racist when it yes. comes to alligators in 1939? Is that, is that what's going 1, on here? Thousand percent. They 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 earlier they say they can't see color, but they can see texture. Like like is it is it the is it the the, the reptile skin that they have a problem with? I think uh, you know it's like pornography. They know, know know a bad gator when they see one, and they haven't met a good one yet. 
and, and let, here's the thing is that, you know, just, let's just jump ahead and we'll, we'll jump back. But once we, we are introduced to the first alligator of, of this film, you're like, oh yeah, this is clearly, it's, it's racist. It's homophobic. It may be speciesist. Like, I don't know what the term is, but these signs aren't up there for safety reasons. You know, they're not no. telling people like, look out, you know, the, or maybe it was instead of saying like, no gators, like you're not allowed to say like, we've checked the water and there's no gators. You're good to go. Right. Come on in. And and the gators here, they stay out. You're safe. This is clearly a a a threat against them saying if you come in here, there's gonna be trouble. Right. This could be the beginning of Mississippi burning if you jumped ahead three scenes and had a couple of gators and a car and a dog in the same car. That would make it a better movie. Uh well, I mean because there were no sing, there were no, there was no singing and dancing in Mississippi Burning. Although maybe if there had been uh, some singing, yeah, well, not the kind of singing that we're going to talk about. So, oh, yeah. so let's keep moving through. So, so once once our our convicts uh, make it back to this racist casino, um, they they go inside and there are rat races going on, and and in it, um, all of the dogs in this casino are are drunk. And or smoking. Um, and and one dog actually fires a gun to start the races. So again, clearly at this point, uh, the, the Bureau of, of, of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms is both equally represented as well as arguably not represented in this casino as we are being introduced to it. Yes. Uh, the, actually, the rat race, the literal rat race, is maybe the most clever thing in this movie. Which ain't saying much, but it's at least something. I think it's arguably accidental. Right. They 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 didn't get it. No. <laughs> um Yeah, I and it, it's again, it's this weird world where dogs seem to be top of the food chain and rats perform as slaves for their amusement. You know, as we pointed out, this is a movie intended for children. This isn't like cool world or something where it's kind of naughty and the fact that you have all this gunplay and gambling uh would seem somewhat appropriate but this is a kid's movie at this point in the movie i ask you to put yourself in the seat of a child and what is it you relate to on the screen at this point in the story i would say this is the jailbreak (laughs) i think it's i think it's the old prostitute dog who tells Charlie that things have been bad since ever he's been gone. And, and, and I think, I think that what she means by that is that Charlie isn't paying her for sex. That seems to be the implication. And (laughs) it's like everyone in this movie forgot they were making a kid's movie, you know, like the writers were just like, Hey, how about a joke about, uh, the, this friendly dog, Charlie be barking fucking this other dog it's that'd be pretty funny yeah no no it wouldn't so 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 after the the prostitute tells charlie that things are rough now that he's gone we get our first song in the film which is um you can't keep a good dog down now upon repeat viewings this song is really i think meant to be ironic or sarcastic the first time I watch it, I'm thinking it's meant to be like, you can't keep a good dog down. I think that they're, they're making a joke about this because they're horrible, horrible people. And with Charlie, <laughs> he, the, the, you know, when Charlie's a mutt, there's this great, and by great, I mean 
horrifically awful moment in the song where they go through and they break down all of the different types of, of, uh, of, I guess maybe, maybe, uh, national or, or, or ethnic DNA that has made its way into the mutt that is Charlie B. Barkin. And it starts out where he and Itchy are dancing on stage. And, and, uh, I think Itchy says, you know, that he's got the luck of the Irish and immediately Charlie puts up his dukes like, like 1930s boxer style, which is, you know, in, in line with the, the era that we're, we're, we're watching, but it's immediately the luck of the Irish is I'm drunk and I'm fighting. He's also slurring his words when he talks at this point as well. That's Bert, that's Bert Reynolds himself. That is not, that is him in studio. Best take. Just getting through the day. <laughs> right. This was, you know, this was the post three martini lunch. I got to go back for reads. <laughs> so, so then following that, it, they say the pride of the Germans to which I was responding. Wait, what? Like what year is this? Who, who wrote this? <laughs> you no, know, like, 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 you know what? There's good dogs on every side of this argument. Um, I'm not going to let you besmirch one particular race over another. Like you said, this is 39. We weren't jumping into anything then. It's just as a nation, we were just seeing how things shook out. Like maybe France was going to hold on to it. it, it it's, you never knew. It, it's complicated. And then, and then the, <laughs> the best part of it again. This is this came out in the late eighties when they said there's even a bit of Siam, and then there's a symbol like the gong that hits, and then there's this this stereotypical wide brim hat that itchy, you know, kind of the fat wiener dog that he's got slant eyes and buck teeth and is like dancing uh-huh. around. Now this is the kind of stuff that's embarrassing for a Warner brothers cartoon that was actually made, you know, decades prior, but it's like, guys, what are you doing? You, you, you can't do this. The, like it is clearly a, a throwback kind of film in the sense that, you know, it's Don Bluth doing his, his kind of riff on, uh, some of that Warner Brothers stuff, one assumes. I mean, just because it comes so fast and furious. And also, I don't know why we're surprised by this at this point. We see how they're treating the Gators. You know? <laughs> <laughs> at least at least the no Irish sign got taken down a couple of years back after the Gators moved in. I think that they saw 16 Candles and were like, you know what? If they can pull off Long Duck Dong we can have a dachshund dance around with buck teeth. We're going to be okay. I see your Asian stereotype. <laughs> and I raise you a Mickey Rooney. <laughs> yeah, but now you're just bouncing all over the place. This is like, this is like quantum leap uh, of a racism, you know, of like, you know, like, like, right. or each leap, you hope you find something more and more racist than the one prior to somehow set the universe right. And, it, and it's, it's never going to work out well. Yeah, it's a, it's a real what are we going to do about these goddamn wrong number dialer situation. <laughs> so <clears throat> we're now introduced um, to Killer. And again, I think that whenever he has to spell his name, he has to put quotation marks around it because he's voiced by Charles Nelson Riley and he shows up. I don't know why he's wearing glasses. Again, I don't understand in this movie why certain dogs wear clothes and certain dogs don't. Like Charlie doesn't wear any clothes except for later he wears a watch around his neck. But there are animals that that are dressed and some that aren't and it 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 doesn't make any sense so so killer is again unless it's meant to be sarcastic which later we find that it's not he's a sociopath he's not menacing he's very bookish 
And then uh, he runs back and goes and meets his boss, who is Carface, who is wearing a vest and a shirt, and he constantly has a cigar in his mouth. He's a big bulldog. And and he and Charlie, you know, uh, were partners in this casino, and he doesn't want to give up all of his money. Charlie goes and confronts his former partner, and, and, and he immediately tells Carface that he's fat. And I just want to say, you know, when we go back and we look at, at previous uh, movies that we've discussed in this season, that, that Burt Reynolds plays characters that has a habit of just picking on people's least flattering features. And knowing that Burt Reynolds, you know, improved a lot of dialogue for this, I think this is completely in line with his, his, you know, through line persona of every character that we've seen thus far. Oh, the guy loves punching down, you know, <laughs> it's not like the, like calling out some big wig corporation or something like that. This is his business partner. You know, for all he knows, like he doesn't know he he got set up or whatever, but or that Carface set him up. But nonetheless, walking in of like, hey, I own half this place. What's up, fatty? Like <laughs> <laughs> the song is the point where I start hating this movie because Burt Reynolds makes everything worse. He's a shitty singer. Mm -hmm. He is phoning in all the voice work in this. And this is another example of him just like, uh, what's the line? Uh, how about I just call him fat? <laughs> Someone act like you're making a real movie. Everything is so lazy in this film. And, and all right, but before I go totally nuts about that, on one quick note, like they give him a watch. One, one little detail in here is like, hey, as part of our... Uh, celebration, uh, the things that, you know, we're going to split up the business. Here's this watch that he can wear around his neck. And immediately on the rewatch, I was like, do you think they put that watch on him so early in this movie so they could save on animation costs somewhere? Like, cause he's got that other watch later. This ain't the same one. It's just another watch he wears around his neck. It certainly could be. I, I wouldn't put anything past this film, especially when it comes to sort of not only lazy writing, lazy animation, lazy character, but the, the whole movie is just, is just devoid of, of, of coherent structure and purpose. He, so here's a question. Why does Carface eat candy canes? That doesn't make any sense. He smokes cigars. I mean, maybe he eats candy canes because his breath stinks or something. He's munching on them like they're, you know, kind of his vice. Like, like, you know, like, like, right. like Kojak with, with, uh, lollipops. He's constantly jamming them in his mouth. And I, they don't explain that. That doesn't make any sense. Right. If, like, if it were a consistent universe where animals did maybe like childlike things or something, I don't know. Or, or that, you know, it was just sort of that Bugsy Malone world where, yes, they have their own casinos and they ride big wheels for cars or whatever. And instead of cigarettes and cigars, they have candy canes. Like I'm good with all that. It's a one or the other. If he's got the candy cane, what then don't have him smoking the cigar is, is gambling illegal in this world? Cause there's a cop in the casino earlier who wins the race. But I was like, I don't even know if that's a bad thing. Well, all these dogs who are in theory, all going to heaven because there are no bad dogs. 
they're all a bunch of degenerate gamblers drunks. He's probably a bad <laughs> cop on the take. Do you remember do you remember the scene? A bunch of racists. Do you remember the scene when he and Carface they're talking to each other and Carface keeps turning down the radio to have a conversation and then Charlie keeps turning it up? Could you imagine having a conversation not even with a friend, just with a human being? And you're like, I'm gonna turn the radio down so we can talk. And every time he finishes a sentence, he turns the radio back up. That's an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's Burt Reynolds in general in all of these movies being an asshole to everyone around him and then being somewhat put out when things don't go his way. Yeah, and this is a perfect example of it, of him just being a complete jerk to, in theory, his business partner. And my read of the movie at this point is Carface is the protagonist. I would want to set this guy up and put him away as long as I could, too. He's clearly a better he's clearly a better businessman. When Charlie comes in, he's giving away the house for free, and that's not how you turn a profit. Even as a casino, right. like the house always wins, but in this he's just giving it away. So, you know, I, I think that, that Carface had had much more of a legitimate reason to set him up and get him out of the picture because they were bleeding money. They weren't making a profit. That place is gonna go out of business. Listen, Charlie. Every time I turn around, you're doing a fucking song and dance number and giving away <laughs> beers and bones to everyone. You're, we can't turn a profit this way. We're down 10,000 bones this month. You're not going to turn a profit that way. You keep banging that 90-year-old poodle prostitute whore. Like, you're giving her the bone in more ways than once. It's not going to happen. It's just She's gonna, giving you the fleas, yeah, It's not going to happen. So somehow, and this is, again, I don't recommend anyone ever watch this movie. But somehow Itchy gets like spun around in this like uh, haunted mansion esque, you know, like book bookcase door and somehow overhears that killer um, is being uh, in put in charge of murdering Charlie. And, and at that point, we cut over, and Charlie and Carface are talking, and Carface says, hey, look, we need to go our separate ways. I'm going to give you half the business. And and Charlie immediately takes the offer. He doesn't even negotiate. He's like, yeah, that sounds great. So then we go to a Mardi Gras parade float where they're throwing uh, Charlie this going-away party. And Charlie is and, – and I had to look up what the, the, the term for this uh, was online, and he's – I think the term is shit-faced. He's, he's hammered drunk – in the back of a Mardi Gras float. And, and to your point earlier, he's then given this watch for no reason at all. It's not like the golden watch after 50 years of service or anything like that. He's just given a watch as a, as a very lazy plot device. And then Carface tells killer uh, specifically, I want you to go and murder Charlie. So they take Charlie and, and he's blindfolded um, at the bottom of a pier that looks like it was built um, uh, in preparation for an evil Knievel stunt. And right, it, by the mob to dump bodies. It, it is. I mean, it's like 300 feet in the air. The fact that they didn't set it on fire, you know, prior to this murder was surprising <laughs> to me. And then to, to really kind of like drive the point home, Carface is the one who releases the, the brake and sends a, an automobile, which I don't know where dogs got a car. I mean, Whatever. The car rolls down this huge. It's their homes too. They live. They build with cars. If it weren't for cars, like it's the basis of their dog economy. I, I don't. I, I. I don't. I don't understand what dogs can and can't do in, in this world. And, and I guess it doesn't really matter. So, so Carface is really the one who who is the the driver of of Charlie being killed. So the car goes down this huge ramp and just tat 
tattoos him into the water and kills our hero immediately, which again, you paid your money. You came in the theater. You knew this was called all dogs go to heaven. You knew a dog was going to get killed. So don't shed any tears. If I may, before we jump into heaven, sure. let's do a check-in with our competition across the, the movie theater, mm -hmm. The Little Mermaid. Yes. Now, as we've said in this film so far, we've had a prison break, racism, gambling, murder, smoking, prostitution. drinking, prostitution. In The Little Mermaid at this point, mm -hmm. uh, a friendly mermaid named Ariel sings a song with her ocean pals mm -hmm. about how she uh, wants to live uh, on land mm -hmm. and then uh, makes an effort to do that. And uh, there are delightful, memorable songs all along the way and colorful characters. And everything's very bright and vibrant and everything's happy. Well, she back talks her father. Uh, yeah, but I mean, again, if you're a kid. You know what? If, yeah. if, you, if you read the good book, I think that's, uh, that's one of the top ten. You're not honoring your father and mother, and I don't see any of these dogs uh, disrespecting their parents. I'll put up the sin count <laughs> of The Little Mermaid. Against that of all dogs go to heaven think, any day of the week, I sir. I think we're probably one versus nine. I think it's the only one. <laughs> yeah. That's the only one we yeah. already checked off the list. Yeah, there's no murder in The Little Mermaid, for one thing. Anyway, all right. Uh, just, not, again, well, want not, to check not in not with Disney act, for Not in Act 1 and Act 2. Maybe in Act 3, if you get the right lawyer, you might be, lawyer, you might be able to, to make that case. <laughs> oh, that's involuntary manslaughter. I, you, don't, you don't need to be a lawyer to know that. So as soon as Charlie is killed, he goes through this 2001 uh, Space Odyssey death tunnel. And then Charlie immediately goes to heaven where he meets Annabelle, who is, let's just call her an angel dog. And she tells him that all dogs go to heaven because unlike people, dogs are naturally good and loyal and kind. Stop right. Unlike every dog we've seen in the movie so far. Exactly. Stop right there. This is 100% not true. Again, unless this is meant to be sarcastic or ironic or just as a joke, none of that is true. Every single dog in this movie is naturally bad, is naturally unloyal, and is horribly unkind. They are awful, awful characters, top to bottom, left to right. They're awful. And as she's flipping through Charlie's book of life, I went through and, and, and I paused the film to write this down because I was very curious. His book of life says that Charlie was a bad dog, that he was a gambler, a pickpocket, a lowlife, a bum, a dirty double crosser, that he, was, he had a greedy lust for money, that he was involved in blackmail, loan sharking, tax fraud, which again, I didn't know that dogs paid taxes and to who, I, I don't know, extortion, racketeering. Um, he was jaded, heedless, wanton decadence, vanity and conceit, infidelity, which means Charlie had been married and cheated on a wife at some point, which maybe we'll get to that later. And then, I, well, or he could be on the technicality of she was married and he's still, you know, what? kind of committing you, adultery. Fair, fair enough. Maybe he was, he was, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, a co-conspirator. Who hasn't, Chad? Who hasn't? It's a big world. Married women are around. Fair enough. I need to go rewatch The Little Mermaid. Charlie is solely focused on one thing at this point once he gets to heaven, and it is revenge. It's not the eternal bliss that is being provided to him, that, that, that life will be beautiful. 
all he is thinking about is revenge of, I want to go back and kill the guy who killed me. Again, this is a children's film. It is an animated song and dance movie that is that at the end of act one is I'm going to go get that son of a bitch and I'm going to bury a knife in his heart and have him look me in the eyes when I do it. I want to see the lights go out. It is. Yeah. So he's like the George C. Scott character from Firestarter of like, I, I have to be the one to do it. Yeah. It's got to be my hands around his throat. And it's like, wouldn't you want to stay here forever? And and when Annabelle says that, that, you know, when you're in heaven, they know everything in heaven. And, and that point, we're kind of introduced to the concept of the watches and that, you know, um, the watch represents your whole life. And then for some weird reason, you know, Charlie's like, well, Hey, you know, what if I rewind it? Can I go back in time? She says, you know, well, no one's ever really done this before. But why not? In the history of dogs going to heaven, if you just give them the watch and like, hey, here's your thing. I, anyway, I've just got a lot of problems with the probability of this, of the billions of dogs. Not one has ever tried. So here's here's a theory that I have about this movie. Is that I think that the Annabelle character in this movie is more um, omnipotent than we may originally give her credit for. Cause she kind of seems a little bit like a flibber to gibbet, but the fact that, and we'll get to this later, that this movie ends where it begins. Nothing changes when we're at the end of the movie. I think that she's much more chill because she kind of knows, like, I know how all this is going to play out. You guys are going to bounce around like a bunch of pinballs, but at the end of the day, we're going to end up back at square one, just where we started. So, you know, wear yourself out, you know, go through a bunch of nonsense and then we're going to be all good. And so I think that's to me, again, I've now watched this movie three times because of this, (laughs) this show, um, that I was like, you know what? I think she's maybe a little more keyed in. And again, this is just sort of my personal interpretation of this. I don't think that anyone involved with this motion picture had this personal fan theory, um, if you want to call it that, in place when they put the movie together. Highfalutin scientist that you are of this film. Uh, what the hell are the lion and lambs doing in dog heaven? This is a real problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> like, how the, how'd they get in? Are they stowaways? I can't. Why haven't they been asked to leave? I can't explain that. All dogs go to heaven, but some lambs and some lions go to heaven. But if you're a lamb, is your heaven hanging out with a lion all day? No. None of this, it all falls apart on scrutiny is what I'm saying. (laughs) So Charlie gets pissed off because there are no surprises in heaven. And... What he really wants, as he says, is adventure and danger. And he says, and I quote in the song, love from a stranger. Infidelity. It's on the list. This, we we know. This this is a children's movie. Like, like do you <laughs> There's a lot of fucking in this movie for it to be a kid's movie. I mean, we'll get to the gator. That's all about sex. But but yeah, I mean there uh, and the kids oh shit. Charlie is fucking everything that moves in, in his song with Annabelle. She actually sings that down there is a world of used cars and singles bars and out of reach stars. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, like, what are you talking about? Like, why would you put that in a children's film? Why would you talk about like, don't have hopes and dreams. It's going to be filled with, with sad loneliness and, 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 you know, shitty, transportation it's just 
awful. The, the songs in this movie are so incredibly forgetful and just. It's fit- better to be dead, right, kids? <laughs> <laughs> so, so Charlie, much to the chagrin of Annabelle, again, who I consider to be uh, the only character in this that, that, that kind of knows what the hell's going on. He winds the watch and Annabelle hauntingly says, you can never come back, which she never explains this. You know, that's never set up as if you do this, here are the consequences. She's like, I don't know. No one's ever really done that before. And then he's like, well, let's just see what happens. So, so Charlie goes back uh, to earth. When he gets back, his sole goal is to kill Carface. And the fact that he can't get back to heaven, you know, I I was wondering, like, does that mean that he goes to hell? Does that mean that he disappears from existence? Uh, You know, like what happens to Charlie? You know, there's no clear, clear impact of you have taken this action. And if, you know, you don't achieve the goal of murdering your murderer, you know, you're never going to be allowed back into the pearly gates. Yeah. I mean, if he's smart, his move is. I'm going to go to Tucson, open up a dog repair business or something, and live out my days. I'm immortal now. Every time I feel like I'm getting a little too old, wind, 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 you know, I'm a young buck again. I can be a fucking dog's new (laughs) dawn till dusk now. Yeah, it's weird. When he comes back and he crawls out of the water, he's all kind of like sepia-toned. He's real gray. And it's that one time in the movie where they show a cat and this cat's kind of, he doesn't talk, he just meows and screams and runs. And um, it's also weird in this, like, like what species can talk to each other? Cause later they can talk to an alligator, but only dogs can talk to dogs. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. But anyway, when Charlie comes out and he kind of breathes in some life, he gets a little color back into him and he goes and sees itchy. Who's having this fever dream that Carface is strangling him only to wake up to see his now leaving dead ex friend, you know, somewhat strangling him and itchy thinks he's a ghost and he freaks out. Charlie doesn't really explain how he came back. And I got to tell you, I'm kind of glad, you know, Itchy's just like, I saw you get killed. It's like, <laughs> like ah, that didn't happen. You know, don't worry about that. You know, can't I, keep a good dog down. Yeah, that's it. Let's sing and dance. You know, wear your big teeth, slant your eyes. This will be hilarious. You got any? You got any shoe polish? I got a great idea. <laughs> so, so Charlie says that he wants to quote make Carface suffer. He wants to to make him suffer <laughs> slow and make him beg for mercy. This is the dog version of the crow. Like <laughs> he's murdered and comes back for vengeance. You know what? I can't argue with that. I think you're right. I think that that's that that is much more akin to what it is. Um, but we're about to take such a sharp turn because the first, the you know, third of this movie proper is all of this stuff, this dark story of murder and revenge. And in a classic case of this movie, won its cake and fucking eating it too. Uh, like, is it, uh, itchy? Who's like, Hey, uh, there's this monster that car faces keep. Mm-hmm. We ought to go check that out. Correct. And that's where we're introduced to, to, to Anne Marie. She's not a monster. She's a child. So again, for children watching this, like, Oh my God, they've got a monster that they've, you know, they've got abducted and it's this horrible creature. And it turns out to be this, you know, beautiful cherubic, um, you know, little girl. And as soon as she's revealed, anyone who has ever seen any Disney film ever, or who's just been, you know, just, just aware of pop culture, that this little girl clearly looks like Snow White as a child. 
it, it's unmistakable. It, it's one of those things that it's just, it almost looks like a Muppet baby version of Snow White. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's the bow and the hair. Her eyes. And the blue. Her, the bl- her eyes and the blue and white. The blushing of her cheeks, everything about her, the way that she kind of does that all shucks head down, just sort of being, you know, head in the clouds and whatever. Everything about her is is Snow White. I think the only reason Disney didn't sue over this is because they saw what they had with the Little Mermaid, and they were like, "Fuck them, let them have their little mini Snow White." I, whatever. I think the reason Disney didn't sue over this is the same reason you don't see cuffs being thrown on characters on the Las Vegas Strip or or in Times Square. It's like you know what? It's not worth the time and trouble. Just, you know what, like, let them dance around for $5 a picture. And you know what, you know, that, that, that's good enough for them. That's their punishment that, that, that they, that they smell that bad and they look that terrible and, and no one believes that they are in any way affiliated with us. They're an embarrassment and, and they're going to end up drunk, covered in their own piss and vomit in the alleyway. And that's kind of what this movie is. That, That was probably in the official memo. (laughs) <laughs> to the VP, what what about this all dogs go to heaven thing? They're going to be uh, in a pool, a puddle of their own piss in an alley, sir. All right, appreciate the update. Yeah. There, there was one moment where Itchy grabs Charlie's hand and tells him that they're really cold, which made me wonder if he was a zombie. I was like, oh, does he have a heartbeat? Like, you know, like like how dead is dead? You know, how alive is alive? And again, it's it's never really explained. So we learn that Anne Marie miraculously can talk to animals. And therefore, determine the winner of races. And that is how the house is always winning with Carface. So again, maybe he's not a better businessman, but he's been able to sort of use this little girl um, to his advantage. In the movie, it's never explained why or how she can speak to animals. It just just sort of magically happens, which that's okay, except in a movie like this, and it's not okay. Also... How do the other animals know? Like, when she's talking to the rats, like, yeah, there's one that, like, hey, he's got an advantage. Uh, later, there's a thing with horses where they just, oh, yeah, we've we've arranged it. And, again, it's like this world where, well, what society do these rats have where they're just all chummy when they're not being pitted against one another in a gladiatorial-style race? It just, the whole thing does not add up to me even a little bit. However, I have an odd reaction here where I also kind of want to live in a world where dogs kidnap like little Dr. Doolittles. That would, if that made the papers, I'd be like, huh, there is a little magic left in this old world. The only thing I was thinking about was where does Anne Marie take a piss and a shit? Because in the wide shot, I was looking for a bucket. Or, or a drain. I was like, this this little girl has got to be making number one or number two somewhere, and they don't address it at all. And then Killer takes care of number two. Let's be fair. I I, I guess I, I like that Anne Marie when all she's asking for is like, I just want to go outside. Which I'm also wondering, that's where maybe she goes to the bathroom. Um, when 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 Charlie sees Anne Marie, because he is he, he he is our protagonist, but he is also the most amoral character in this film. He literally gets dollar signs in his eyes. He's like, ka-ching, this is my uh this is my way to Easy Street. So he jumps down and finds out, you know, Anne Marie is an orphan because of course she is. 
And he decides he is going to kidnap slash rescue her from Carface by performing the same horrible deed that Carface uh, performed. He will somehow come out on top, but not really. At this, is it at this point that he, they start talking about like, oh, we'll open up a casino of our own? Well, what they've got to do is they've got to use her to bankroll enough money to open up their own casino. That's kind of that's really the plan. So after they steal, after they they steal her away from from Carface, Killer goes in and sees that Anne Marie is gone, and uh, Carface in this weird scene in this, he's sitting in a car and there's a motion picture a camera like projecting a moving background behind him on a screen and they're playing scenes simulating driving. There's a fan blowing. And then it, it, it like, I'm just like, what, what are you doing? Like, what are you trying to tell me that Carface wishes he could drive a car? Can he drive a car that they can, they can set up a simulator. Like, I don't even understand what the hell's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Or does he want to be a movie star? I don't know. Cause they're like, I, none of it, none of it adds up. And again, at this point in the movie, the story is, because get ready for the whiplash, the story is still all about casinos and and also primarily Charlie being on the grift. Like when you hear the list of his crimes when he's in heaven, it's like, oh, he's a con man. He's a grifter, as, uh, as immortalized in the Stephen Frears film. <laughs> and um, immediately... When he sees this girl, like you said, it's just, it, it clicks. It's like, oh, this is going to be a great scam. Yeah, complete, completely. There's nothing about it. And again, here's the thing that, that in, in, um, in more capable hands, you could set up that story. You can have the scoundrel who becomes, you know, sort of the, the, the thief with a heart of gold. You know, you could turn that around. They, they don't do that in this film. So, so once he's, he's kidnapped Amory, we see them in, uh, an auto junkyard called Don's auto yard, which is from Don Bluth. Cause later there's a Bluth's bakery. It's like, it's so on the nose. Like really you gotta, you know, pepper your own name in there. <sighs> so <laughs> it's like uh Hitchcock only real shitty. It, it, it is. It's just, it's just kind of stupid. And so he's, he's reading the book of war and peace and he's making up the story of, of Robin hood to Anne Marie. And, and Charlie uh, tells Amory that it's okay that, that Robin Hood gave away money because um, dolls loved him all the more. So Robin Hood gave away money because he got more tail. And he's telling her that, you know, it's wrong and why. And, and, and why are they telling her the story of Robin Hood? It, again, this should be something where they're sort of setting up. We're going to take money from those that have and give it to those that haven't. And that's yes. not what they do in this at all. Yeah, yeah, it, it right again. Our notes kind of mirror each other here because it's so glaringly obvious that what you do with this moment—the fact that he's reading Robin Hood in particular or making up Robin Hood, right—and and that she, you know, even says at one point, like you said, we'd be like Robin Hood. It's like, well, that okay. That's the thrust of this movie. Is this no good? rogue character who's amoral and uh, on the grift and all that is going to learn from this girl that actually he can turn his you know talents of being a awful shitty person or dog uh to, to like steal money from carface and give it to the orphans that we'll meet in a little bit that's a story you can tell that makes sense that's not the story that is told in this movie but that would be a movie. 
No, his his version of Robin Hood was Robin Hood went and took this money from this no good son of a bitch because he was a piece of shit. And then he took the money and kept it for himself and gave a little bit to this, you know, piece on the side because, you know, she knew how to take care of business. Anyway, the end. Good night, sweetheart. <laughs> Do you think that this movie played bigger in Jersey? I, you know, I, 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 I definitely <laughs> think that, that there were parts of the country that, that resonated more with certain characters than others. There's also, there's they see the no gator signs and are like, you know what? I don't care for him either. Yeah. Down, down South. They were like, mm-hmm, that was, that, that was a dog whistle. I so, get it. So, so there's one moment in this where Amory is listening to this story. And, and I, I asked, I asked a few people about this. I asked you about it. I asked my wife. I asked a couple other people. And there's one scene where Amory is listening to this story. She's sitting there and her skirt kind of rides up and you can see her underwear and it's really uncomfortable. And everyone that I talked to that I was like, well, you just kind of watch this and just uh, give me your initial thoughts. And it was like, why am I seeing this, you know, seven year old little girls underwear during this scene? It's crazy. Yeah. It's re- it's really unsettling. The whole scene, and maybe it's because of that moment, but it just sets a tone. But the entire scene of them in the car together, where she like creeps into the back and is like, Charlie, can I have your bed? The other one's scratching. And she's kind of leaning against the back of the seat. Yeah. And even as he leaves, he's just like, dames. And you're like, what is going on? Are they falling in love? What's happening here? Is there sexual tension between the little girl and the dog? It's, that doesn't seem appropriate. It's it's uncomfortable. And again, I don't know that everybody is necessarily going to view it through the same you know lens. But again, I I did a survey of five and said, "Will you just watch this and give me your thoughts?" And all five of them were like, "That's gross." Yeah, it it feels real. Again, another reason I hate this movie because there are moments throughout the film. Uh, this is the most pointed of them i think but there are a couple of times where it's like i don't understand what the relationship between charlie and Anne marie is like there's a father daughter kind of thing but there's also these moments where in the way she's animated like sometimes just the the motion of her is a little too adult or something i don't know but there's something off about moments in this film with uh with her portrayal that i think are really uncomfortable I, I don't think it's father daughter, and and I don't I don't say this lightly or even for comedic effect. It kind of reminded me of like a pimp and a young prostitute. <laughs> yeah, like that's probably more accurate. But there are moments right. in it where it's like, look, you're you are my golden goose, and I need you to keep cranking out eggs. And if I got to put you out on the street, then I got to put you out on the street. You know what I mean? Like I'm gonna, I, you know, I don't mind putting you in harm's way, but not so much that they're gonna kill you. And really spoiler alert that's kind of the end of this movie so <laughs> last week on the deuce right so 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 charlie takes Anne marie to uh to the horse uh track of course and he wants her to find out who's going to win the race so that they can uh they can bet money and bankroll this into another dog casino again this is a children's film so Anne marie uh she calls charlie out for being just like carface because he is and um, he, again, sort of, you know, sweet talks her into to doing his evil bidding. And so they go to these horses. And again, I was curious, I was like, like, there's one horse that's wearing a monocle and has a, has a, like a cigarette holder in his mouth. I don't understand. Like, 
so some horses smoke and wear clothes and other horses don't nothing about that's right nothing about this world makes any sense whatsoever welcome to the real world chad maybe that's what don bluth is trying to teach us. i guess so nothing makes any sense there's no payoff so, so charlie promises Anne marie um that he was like you know what and this is where he kind of like plays his trump card he says you know what i'll help you find a mom and a dad um only after you can sort of uh uh help us uh, figure out which horse is going to win. And, and in addition to that, I'll buy you some new clothes because let's be honest with you. You look like, you know, a vagrant and who would want to adopt a horrible, nasty, smelly child like you. Uh, but, but I can, I can make all this happen as long as you can tell me who wins this horse race. Another prime example of classic Burt Reynolds negging. Uh, you're not pretty enough. No one's going to want you. Correct. You're lucky to have me. Mm-hmm. Now get out there and make us some money. That's it. That, that's complete. That's completely what's going on, which has been in line with, with the t- previous two <laughs> Burt Reynolds characters that we've, we've examined thus far. So, so we yeah. get, so she comes in and says, Hey, this, this one old, uh, uh dilapidated horse called grand chair, uh, the grand Chawhee um, is going to win. Cause it's his birthday and all the other horses, I guess, either as a present to him is going to let him win. So we go to the racetrack and here's the thing. So we're in new Orleans and this is a racetrack and everyone at this racetrack is a white person. There's, there's nothing other than just white skin across every footstep, every face, you know, that you see passing in the crowd. They're all white, which I call shenanigans on. I don't know. I, I mean, obviously not a hundred percent, but I would say that you go to any horse betting parlor. I would think that was a white man's game mostly. I, d- d- you watch this movie again and, and take a look at it. It's like this is eerily white. There's a well, little- sure. I mean, we're in 1939, New Orleans. Correct. One of the whitest cities in America. Everyone knows that. Sure. So, so once our our race goes off, the Grand uh, Chawhee is uh, is, is again picked to be the winner. So Charlie. Uh, uh, continuing his path of, of just shitty behavior. He then pickpockets a guy um, that we will later find out is going to uh, turn out to be potentially Anne Marie's possible dad uh, for some reason. And his wife uh, asks about uh, Anne Marie. And she says, you know, like, where are your parents? Because my husband, boyfriend, you know, fiance, lover, whatever you want to call him. We're at the dog track and there's a child running around. Where are your parents? And like, you know, oh, you know, they're not here. And uh, uh, they steal his wallet to be able to use his money to place a bet to to bankroll this dog casino. Is there anything that I've missed thus far in the convoluted plot uh, of this film at this point in the game? No. I mean, it's nice to see Anne-Marie a part of the team and on the grift with the rest of them now. Because her whole gig is like, you know, hey, go distract them while I, I pick the wallet out of his pocket. Which, by the way, if we lived in a society with dog pickpockets, holy shit. It would be amazing. An- another thing I would kind of like to see <laughs> brought into the world from this movie. Can we talk for just a second about the animation as they're going to place this fucking bet? Right. In the, I, in the overcoat? Yeah. Uh, yes. It's the, you know, we're going to stack a couple of little people on top of each other to pose as a... a, a actual real size person right or a couple of kids or whatever except now we're doing it with two dogs and Anne marie and it's it, this is the microcosm of what i don't like about don bluth animation which is just that it's all over the place 
there's just everything is moving and waggling and bouncing. And in this scene in particular where it's, you know, this overcoat that's flipping and flopping and it's just too busy. There, there is no elegance to any of it. It's just like, hey, if we got a frame, let's animate it. You know, there's there's no point in this film where it, it ever just stops and settles on an image. There's always a dog flicking its ear fleas and Charlie turning up the radio or whatever the fuck it is. It's just too much. Yeah. It just stop for a second. It reminds me a little bit of, you know, whenever um, animation takes on the concept of of hallucination. You know what I mean where it's just kind of it's just like like the boundaries are are broken and it's all over the place. You I mean it's kind of swirling around and spinning and here and there. But I, I agree with you. It, it's certainly difficult to focus, and and on top of that, um, it, it it's physically impossible for a dachshund to sit on the shoulders of a German Shepherd with a child on top of his shoulders. And I'm not is that what breaks it for you? It, breaks the movie. It, it really is. I'm like this could not happen. Up until this point, I was somehow buying into the reality that they had painted. But at this point, with her having a fake mustache, um, placing a bet, um, I was like, you know what? You lost me. That's it. Here's the problem. You put Anne-Marie on the bottom, which would make sense because she can walk on two legs. Then you got a dog head. You can't have a dog place in a bet. No. You got to have the human head. No. Unless, unless the name of the horse that they were betting on was like Ralph or rough or something like that. And at that point, it's just stupid. I don't know if you've ever seen this film, but there is a movie, uh, a guy named William Girdler directed it called day of the animals, which features for my money, one of the greatest scenes in cinema history where a shirtless Leslie Nielsen fights a bear over the love of a woman. It's a remarkable film. But as I watched this movie, I thought like, this is really the prequel to that. This is all the animals like having their own societies, talking, like running cars, running casinos, stealing money from people, placing bets on horses. This is all just the planet of the apes to be. Eventually, they're going to get wise to the fact that humans aren't paying attention and the society crumbles. Well, I think where where your your theory holds true is that after they win this particular horse race, we then follow up to a lot of other races, which involves um, uh, people betting. And again, I don't, maybe this is the culture of Louisiana. I don't know. I visited Louisiana, had a great time when I was there, but I, I was unaware that people raced frogs. I mean, I'd read about this in, in uh, the books of Mark Twain. <laughs> sure. That's the only place I know it, it ever happened, right. but all right. I wasn't aware of turtle races. But again, I could see that happening. The one that really got me were the kangaroo boxing. And again, I've understood that kangaroo boxing happens and either I'm, I'm assuming Australia or, or uh, less reputable county fairs. But in Louisiana, that they would have a like, you know, uh, unsanctioned kangaroo boxing in general seemed to be a bit of a stretch. How much would you pay right now to see two kangaroos box each other in front of you? Right now, $17. Yeah. That's all. I don't have that much money right now. All right. No. I'd, I'd, I'd throw down 50. That would be worth <laughs> I like that once our heroes start making money, they're essentially rolling around in this mountain of like Scrooge McDuck coins. You know, like everything. Ab- 
everything about there are so many moments in this movie that when you watch it, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's from that's Disney did that. You know, them like like romping around in loose change. You're like, yeah, I've seen that before. So we we get all this money, and and Charlie again, true to his word. Um, he goes to, to buy a dress for Anne Marie and she's trying on all these dresses. And at one point when she's trying them on, she turns around and flips up the back of her dress and she shows her ass in her underwear. And again, I only bring this up because if this had been a live action film and this had just sort of happened as part of the, the actors, I don't know, movement within their costume. That's one thing. This is an animated film. This is an intentional choice to have a child who is eight years old, turn around and take the back of her dress and flip it up and show her underwear and her ass, you know, to her pimp dog and his, you know, mechanically inclined sidekick. Do you, do you think they had a, how high is too high conversation? Like, can we see all of the underwear? Should we go half? Maybe three quarters. I like how much eight-year-old ass can we show before it's a thing? I don't think it was like how high. I think it was the number of times. And I, 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 re- I, I really think that there were, there were there were people on the staff that were like twenty-six, and it was like, oh my god, like Gary, what are you doing? Like what? No, like no, no. I'm people really like yeah, it. like like what? I'm the weirdo. Like yeah, you are. Like all right, how about eight? How about none? Three, zero, two. All right, two. The scene in the car, like, and we know that's your favorite because you've animated it over and over again. It's pretty good. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 Gary, it is really good. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, you're weird. You know, you, you need to leave. Yeah, yeah it's really like, people really like it. Yeah, that guy's right. It's that's just you again, Gary. It's not. It's not child pornography. If it's for children, that's just pornography for children <laughs> there's a differentiation there like jesus christ like who it's hired this? four kids by kids right. that's nice like, this is horrible man you know so <laughs> so after they 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 bankroll this money they go and build a new casino out of old cars and and itchy builds this thing up like he's from mad max and Anne-Marie is rightfully pissed off because they're not giving any money to the poor people, which she said they were going to do. And he, and Charlie hasn't done anything to help her find her parents. And so Anne-Marie is just, she's just pissed off. And so Charlie is, this is, this is probably one of my favorite scenes. Charlie says, you know what, Anne-Marie, you're right. Which is trouble. He's like, you know what? We are going to go help the poor. And so Charlie and Anne-Marie go to visit quote, as Charlie puts it, some of the poorest people he knows. And then they go, they go into this room and it's full of puppies and their mom is there. And then all of the puppies run out and they yell, they they call him uncle Charlie. But I'm telling you right now, there is a 100% chance that he is the father of every single puppy in that room. Yeah. It's like, it's like when you meet your dad at the age of 13 and you have that uncomfortable conversation with him where you're like, hey, can I borrow the car, Greg? I mean, I can't really call you dad now, can I? And that's where all these kids are. Yeah, but here's the difference. In, in, in the story you just told, that was at the age of 13. These are puppies. They were born like two weeks ago 
inside of an old paper bag. And like their mom is right there. And he's like, Uncle Charlie. And here's the other thing. He also shows up with like at the end of it, he he, he has a bunch of uh, uh, pizzas and they're eating them. And then there's this horrible song and dance number that they do. And it's just terrible. But at the end of it, he oh, he gives them, he gives them all a, um, a birthday cake. Like at the end, and they all and I got to feel like that's the one and only birthday that they celebrate together. And even in that song, what he, the lyrics that he sings, which I think is just a, a, a sheer ad, ad admission of of like his own paternity to these dogs. He's singing, "What's what's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine." And I think he's he's specifically referring to their DNA. I thought he was talking about alimony, but all right. Uh, well, six would that be dog six, six 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 of one, six of one half the other. Yeah. Oh no, he is he is one hundred percent a a deadbeat dad in this film on top of everything else. But like this isn't the only litter out there. No. This is just no. the one that he pays some kind of attention to. I got news for you. That was the closest one. <laughs> just geographically. Yeah. He was just like like this is a block and a half away. I'm gonna go Hey, which uh which one of my baby mamas is close? <laughs> So we also have another scene where Carface, for some reason, is going to feed uh, Killer, his sidekick, to a bunch of piranha. I don't know. And and then Killer tells him that he has a gun and that he has a Flash Gordon thermoatomic ray gun. And so Charlie's like, I'm going to let you live because you've got this gun, which you're like, OK, well, that we're, we're, we're going somewhere with that. And, and we'll come back and visit this a little bit later. We jump ahead and Amory discovers uh, the wallet that Charlie's stolen with photos of her uh, delusional parents um, that she thinks is going to adopt her. And Charlie kind of hymns at halls. And there's this weird musical number where uh, there are visions of like puppies and parents together. And Amory's going to, you know, live with these two total strangers that just took pity on her because she's running around in loose fitting stained clothing at a, at a horse track. And then we abruptly cut to this scene where Charlie is having this dream where he, he literally is going to hell. Um, a tornado comes in and drags him down to the underworld in this lake of fire. And there are demon dogs and there's devil dogs and there are these small, uh, uh, hellhounds. And it's, it is terrifying. And I'm just thinking as a child watching this, like, what the hell is, is going on? What am I supposed to make of this, you know, demonic, uh, canine underworld, uh, in, you know, in contrast to sort of the, the heavenly, uh, you know, bliss that we saw earlier that, that Charlie, you know, passed on to go back to, you know, commit his own, uh, vengeful murder. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't he go there first? Is it a real place? Which according to the end of the movie spoilers, it kind of is, I think. Yeah. And if that's the, uh, again, none of this makes sense. There just don't seem to be any rules. Like if there is a dog hell, but all dogs go to heaven, then is it just the devil dog hanging out by himself all the it does, time? Yeah, it, do, it doesn't make any sense. In fact, part of me was like, well, maybe they're, maybe they're dingoes. Maybe they're coyotes. <laughs> Variations. Well, maybe it's just little dogs. Right. Maybe, maybe you know, there could be something about that. <laughs> I'm not sure. So. So Anne-Marie's like, you know what? I'm out of here. So she runs off to go find her fake mom and dad. And she ends up getting to their house. And because they feel terribly sad for this girl, decides to make her a waffle. And in the background, they're kind of talking uh, while Anne-Marie is, is eating waffles. And I'm, I'm, I'm making the assumption that they're talking about calling either the authorities, 
child protective services, someone who will take this, you know, kind of street urchin off their hands. I do not believe that they're, uh-huh. they're having a conversation around how quickly can we adopt this child and where is the closest pharmacy to get uh, a treatment for lice? <laughs> right, right. Also like, well, we got to call the police and somebody's got to be here and we got to go pick up Jenny from soccer. No. At two, it's just like, like, what are we going to do with this little girl? How quickly do we get this child out of our house? Because I have a gambling addiction and we need to get back to the horse track. (laughs) Right. So somehow Charlie shows up in the bushes uh, at this house and he comes to say goodbye and he tries to guilt her for being there. And he tells Emery that she's his best friend. And then he starts faking injury or, or sickness, which is not unlike what we saw in Stroker Ace in the bar, where he's kind of, you know, limping away to, to, to garner sympathy from, um, you know, uh, his, his sort of female prey. And Emery is, is clearly. <laughs> I call it the old reliable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Emery, yeah. she is clearly the most psychologically manipulated child that I've ever seen in an animated movie ever that she's just, it, 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 I almost feel like pity for her because everyone is just constantly using her for their own means. And as a child watching this, you know, who do you identify with? Is it like, like, yeah, yeah, that's like me, you know, or I'm like the dog right. or I'm like the, mur- the, mur- the murdering, you know, a uh, cigar smoking candy cane crunching you know sociopath i don't know yeah i i really relate to being constantly lied to by every member of authority around me up until i saw this movie i want to say mowgli from the jungle book held the title for the most manipulated character in an animated film because everybody in the jungle book is tugging that kid one way or the other they got something they want him to do for him okay i would argue that above uh, above the honey stuff that Baloo had no real agenda of for anything. He was lonely. He just wanted. well, sure. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. I would say that 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 prior to Mowgli in the Jungle Book, I think he stole the title from Cindy Lou Who. Oh yeah, because she was yeah. in there. It's like you know what? I'm going to manipulate you, but you can really see how a lot of this built upon one another to the point to where we're really looking at sort of like this animated version of, of this, you know, kind of weird grooming of a child to, to kind of, you know, end up on the street for you in one way or the other. Yeah. She is a half step away from the Eileen Wernos origin story. It's, it's, it's really gross. I mean, it's, 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 it's disturbingly unsettling when you really kind of take a step back and watch what's going on. So once Amory leaves or Amory leaves, uh, uh, because she feels bad for Charlie. She's like, you know what? You're right. These incredibly loving human beings um, are, are not the people I should be with. I should leave and go with Charlie again because she just so desperately uh, wants to go have a horrible friend such as Charlie B. Barkett. And they go down to the the French quarter and they pass. And this is the, the moment where they pass Bluth's bakery, which you know what? Enough already with that. And mm. then they, and we've already been in Don's auto salvage yard or whatever else. And then this is the point where Carface and Killer, just out of the just out of the damn blue, they start blasting a laser gun, and it's like it's like something out of like not even Star Wars. It's like out of Buck Rogers. Man, I mentioned Flash Gordon, but it it is so out of place in this movie. We talked about how this joke, or this should have been a joke. It should have been, hey, I've got this ray gun. 
killer goes to fire it and it's just sparks or whatever. You know, that it's a child's toy and he's a dog and he doesn't understand that. Like, maybe play into the premise a little bit. And instead, it's a real laser gun that doesn't exist today. No. And it shoots Charlie and presumably kills him. And one of the things that's really lazy in this movie is that when it doesn't know how to end a scene, it does a weird, um, like, like iris closing or, or like a wipe of the screen that kind of like disappears in the middle. And this scene just sort of ends that they show up and they shoot Charlie with these bright orange, you know, pew, pew, pew lasers. And then he's not kind of dead. I think his, his watch deflects one of the lasers and, and that's, you know, kind of how he stays alive. And it's just, it's lazy and stupid and it does nothing to progress the plot whatsoever. It just seemed like an idea that someone had in either writing the script or, or doing storyboarding and it just somehow didn't make its way on the cutting room floor. It, well, it's because they removed all the panty shots. Right. Yeah. And they were like, we have nothing in this movie. I was scribbling on a ray gun yeah. thing. Fine, fine. We got to get something in there. So it's got to be seventy-eight minutes at least. So, so Charlie, Charlie, and Amory go and hide in a in a costume shop in New Orleans, and for some reason they fall through a rotten floor and they land in a swamp, I guess. And Charlie loses his watch, and it kind of floats away, and it's sort of this weird like like haunted moment where things are moving around and then we we cut to uh Charlie and Amory being held in these like oversized wooden bird cages this is uh the the watch that Charlie has kind of bounces out and this is the first time that the this huge alligator shows up down in the swamp and what didn't make sense to me among many many things in this film is that dogs can understand what alligators say but do alligators understand dogs, you know, kind of, you know, what exactly is going on? And is that kind of the root cause of the whole alligator racism that we saw at the beginning of the, the movie at the casino? Are, are they able to communicate and therefore that's what's creating the tension? You know, I'd like to think it were that high minded. I think that these dogs just look at uh, an alligator uh, wearing some sort of tin can for a hat and a bone with- and a bone through his nose. That's either racist or it may be like sort of like a wink of the eye to like this is sort of like some sort of like like gay piercing. He's one of them. I have no idea what this alligator is. I don't know what his agenda is. It looked for a second like he wanted to eat them. And then it it seems to be very clear that the alligator, I'm not assume it's a dude. But wants to fuck Charlie? I I do not know. It's also weird that when the alligator goes to eat Charlie, Charlie lets out this high-pitched note, which upon the initial viewing, this happens earlier in the film. And I intentionally didn't mention it because the first time I saw it, I didn't even notice it. When I rewatched it, I saw that it happened when he re-enters the casino, that he kind of lets out this high-pitched note and people see that he's there. But it's not done as deliberately early on to the point to where you recognize when he he does it again, that you know this is kind of like maybe his signature howl or his signature note. And because he howls, the alligator lets him out of his mouth. He's like, I'm going to eat you because you're a singer. And you're just like, wait, <laughs> what? You're not going to, you're an artist. I guess so. And it's also weird because the, 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 the actor whose name eludes me right now, the person who sings for the alligator is the guy who did the voice for Oogie Boogie in uh, nightmare before Christmas. And, and in watching this, the alligator bore a striking resemblance 
to um, the thinly veiled uh, racist portrayal of the plant in Little Shop of Horrors that had come out two years prior. Now, again, I don't know what the turnaround time is for an animated film. If they saw that and decided to rip it off, you know, if they had to fill in a lot of those child panty moments that the MPAA said, you cannot have a whole movie of, of a little girl dancing around in her underwear. Um, and therefore they replaced it with a singing alligator. Um, but it's, it was just one of those things like, this just sort of feels like, again, yet another example of, of, an experience that I've seen before only watered down and much worse. I, again, it, it's one of those characters that is thrown into the film. And now that you mentioned that whistle at the beginning, I still don't remember it. Like it, it doesn't leave any kind of impression. Like why not just have a glass shatter or right. something? Just anything, anything that means anything in this movie. But yeah, this King Gator is like, yeah, you're a great singer. Now, uh, we're going to be big buddies and becomes a kind of a major factor in the film that is again, ostensibly about opening a casino, which we never see again. There's also the, also the, the, it cannot be denied that the, the gator in this, um, especially with the, the TikTok of his watch that it has, um, like, like, like faint, uh, ties to the crocodile from Peter Pan. I mean, it, the, oh, sure. the, the way that it shows up, it feels like the TikTok croc and, and you're like, Oh yeah, yeah. That, that, that's completely what it reminds you of. And again, the fact that a lot of Disney animators worked on this. Okay, fine. You know, sure. Whatever. But it's just like, like you're just relying on something that other people already know. The, the we do this Busby Berkeley musical that it, I, it can't, we haven't really touched on this, but the, the songs in this movie are so shitty they're so bad they're so they're and, but it's not that they're bad songs they're they're poorly sung they're poorly performed the mixing of the audio is just terrible the the one in the orphanage or you know his 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 little den of sin or whatever yeah. that one i think is particularly bad in terms of the sound mix the music sounds like it's it's uh the default rhythm on a casio keyboard that they sing to none of them are memorable. Like when you have quoted some of the lines from songs, I'm like, Oh yeah, I guess that was in that song. I mean, there is, there was nothing catchy about them. Uh, when I was looking at the, the people who did the music uh, for this to kind of know uh, who to hate, uh, <laughs> I like one of them had done Annie and the rest of them were all, you know, kind of country. One of them was a country, uh, uh, songwriter right um i mean it was just kind of all a bunch of nothing really except for the one dude who did annie but it just all stinks to high heaven i wish they were a little bit worse because then they would at least be memorable you know two days from now i won't be able to tell you the name of a song in this movie which is partly my fault and partly the fault of this film i argue yeah they're really really bad so so once the crocodile decides not to eat him um, Anne Marie starts coughing and she tells Charlie, quote, I don't feel good. And if you ever watch any movie ever and a small child starts coughing and looks at the protagonist and says, I don't feel good. That kid's gonna, uh, that kid's gonna die. That's what's going on. You're going to die. It, it's the, like, that's the family movie equivalent of someone saying, 
let me go check that out in a horror film. It's just like, write that character off. They're done. Completely. And in, and in this film, Charlie kind of says, he's like, he's like, uh, he, he, he shows a sense of compassion and he's like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And I think upon initial viewing, you're like, wow, this is a turning point where, where Charlie is really, truly starting to care about Amory. You're wrong. Charlie is only compassionate because his gravy train is going bye-bye. That's it. He's worried that if she dies, he is shit out of luck. That's it. That is my theory. And I can back that up in any court, any day of the week. He's a horrible, horrible character and cares nothing about only himself. That's it. We are into the third act of this film now. Yes. And he is still a shitty person. He confesses to what a shitty person he is. You know, when, when he's having this big moment with itchy and it's just like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm taking this girl for a ride. See, (laughs) like as soon as she can't talk to animals anymore, she's out on the street. See, he should with, with this little time left in the film, we should be seeing Charlie, already making the path, the journey to redemption, you know? And I know this is stupid, like screenwriter shit, but the break into three needs to be him making this realization and not waiting until the last 15 minutes of the fucking movie to decide he's going to be a good guy. Cause at that point I don't buy it. I don't think he ever does that. I think, yeah, I think itchy gets the shit beat out of him by Carface shows up and says, Hey, you know, look, this girl's causing too much trouble. And, and to the point that you made that he, he admits that, look, I'm taking this girl for a ride. Anne Marie overhears this and she runs away. And, and again, presumably gets kidnapped by Carface. And then there's this ripoff of 101 Dalmatians. One of the many things that are ripped off in this, uh, this movie from Disney where all the, the dogs are, are barking at each other, kind of like that twilight moment. I'm um, in the Disney film and then we cut to Anne Marie and she's hanging in this giant cage from a cable, which is reminiscent of, you know, that weird cage from time bandits. And she's really sick. It looks like she's dying. And then Charlie says that uh, he's going to take her uh, to her parents. And he's clearly lying. He's not going to do that. And, and nope. then Carface and his goons, they show up and then, for some reason, um, Itchy gets all these dogs and they all run to to the fake parents, the the people that, you know, Amory thinks are gonna adopt her. They open the door and there's there's like <laughs> there's like fifty Yeah, the, the people who made her a waffle and then she like Irish goodbye to them. That's it. Here's the thing. They were at the horse track and they saw this little girl and and the guy's wallet goes missing, which you could be like, did that girl steal my wallet or something? Then she shows up at their house and they make him a, a waffle and then she's out the door. Then they, right. then they open the door and there's, there, there are literally like 50 dogs outside their house, all barking at best. There's like a rabies outbreak. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> right. And at worst, this is the canine equivalent of the birds and dogs are going to be ruling the earth in, in a matter of weeks. You know, and, and, and they just, they, they had a peek into that and it's really, it, it's really bizarre that they're just like, I guess we should follow, you know, these dogs. So we cut to my move. There is you grab the shot. Correct. And you blast run upstairs. 
get in the bathtub and you you hope that nothing comes up. I don't even go up the stairs. And I love dogs. I've had dogs my whole life. But if I show up and there are 50 dogs outside my door and they're all barking at me or whatever else and it's 1939, I'm grabbing a shotgun and I'm blasting my way through them. It's it's it, it. I see. I'm a, I'm too afraid that like you're only going to kill so many, and if they're that organized already, you might get I don't know. Let's say you get a dozen. That's still 38 dogs coming for you. I feel, and I don't like that. Man. I feel like that at that point, I'm like, you know what? I can already see what the future holds, and and I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm gonna take a few of you down with me, and and it, and, and, and it's gonna be more of a moral victory than anything. Uh huh. It's a real choke that, on. That's him. it. You know. What I mean? So, so we come back to Charlie and, and they've tied him to an anchor. So he, Carface and his goons have tied him up and Anne-Marie is, is going to die. And, um, no, they're not going to kill her. Carface is like, as soon as you're dead, she's back in the pit, picking the, the, the ponies for me. Right, right, right. They're, 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 everything's going to go back to, to how it was. And then for some reason he gets bit on the foot by one of these thugs. And then, um, who who I deemed at this point in the movie, big gay alligator shows up and he saves Charlie's life. Cause he hears the howl and he's like, you know, that's my baby. And he comes riding back and just like this deus ex machina crashes through the, the ship. And there's like, like, you know, at this point we, we didn't have this convergence of, you know, a hundred dogs, uh, with with sort of these fake parents have all shown up and we're all coming in to, to sort of save the day. And as the culmination of this film, we have this big fight between um uh between Charlie uh and and Carface while Anne Marie is floating on this box and there's an oil fire burning and they're beating each other up and big gay alligator uh or is 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 romping around in the water and then Anne Marie falls in the water and then Charlie has a choice. He can either save his watch, which if it fills with water, he's going to die, or he can save Anne Marie. And he chooses to save Anne Marie. And in, again, I think in initial viewing, it feels like he made a sacrifice to save her. But I submit to this jury that that is not an act of nobility because if he saved the watch and didn't save Anne Marie, his gravy train is dead and gone. But if he can somehow save the little girl, first and then go save the watch he can still continue to abuse her you know psychologically physically emotionally and in many other ways i think he's always thinking about the long con right and and because we have no surefire way to tell how long it's going to take for the watch to stop the the quick calculation is she's going to die sooner than the watch is going to stop correct and therefore, I have time to save them both. Because he doesn't just stick with her. He goes back for the wa- the watch. And we, you know, the the audience, presumably mostly children, gets to see this dog drown to death. For the second time in an hour and a half. Yes. yes. This one, I think, is a little more dramatic, though. There's a real, like, you know, I'm swimming for the thing. And then, oh, just can't make it. It's, and he, it's grisly. And he's dead. So, so her fake parents show up and again, because they're not monsters, they take her back to the house and put her in the bed and, and, and Charlie's dead. And then this is when you get this wide shot of, of New Orleans and the devil shows up over the entire city, which I'm assuming that's where the devil lives just in general, you know, just as like he has, 
just hang time. I think he, I think that's his 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 primary home is there, and I think that he has a summer home, you know, somewhere in you know I don't know Massachusetts or something. But he but he's there, and this just huge devil shows up, and I'm again I want to so did Charlie go to hell? You know, did the did the devil let Charlie come back to say goodbye? None of this is explained. So Charlie comes in to see Amory, and she's laying in bed, and she looks up, and I don't know why, and she tells him she's sorry. Why? I, I don't know. And at that point, the blue fairy from a Disney film shows up and unceremoniously just defeats Satan over the city of New Orleans. And she tells Charlie yeah. that he can go to heaven because he gave his life for Anne Marie, which, as I pointed out earlier, was not true. Just to paint this picture, when when the devil dog shows up, Charlie emerges from red flame to talk to Anne Marie. So I assume he's been in doggy hell or purgatory or but something. Yeah. I mean, the dog that showed up don't look like purgatory dog to me, but maybe. And, and then you're right. Then a blue orb shows up and it's just like, you know, I banish thee and it's gone. Like I, whatever that threat was, it's no longer a threat. I, I don't know what it was to begin with. I'm not exactly sure what I should be afraid of about it. And now it's not a problem. So I guess everything worked out. Why, when he says goodbye to Anne-Marie, does she say, I'm going to miss you, Charlie, and that she loves him? What has he ever done to help her at all? Well, she's still conned, right? Like, that's the sign of a great grifter, is that even when the con is over, they thank you. You know? And that's what he's doing here. He's he's popping in. He's like, "How's, how's my little gravy train? I mean, best girl doing... And yeah, it, it, like she's still totally buying into it because she has been psychologically abused for years at this point and doesn't know no better. Like maybe a few years with this family will we'll fix some stuff, but God, I, I pity her boyfriend that she is going to be kind of crazy. I don't even think she's, Yeah, I, I think she's going to end up just as just a, a, a street prostitute with a severe heroin problem. I mean, it's, it's going to end, it's going to end really, really bad for Anne Marie. Yeah. There, she's got about nine years until she starts laying into these, you know, would be parents about how they're not her real parents. And how she can do whatever the fuck she wants. And she's going to be a handful. Can you imagine what it would be like? And just like, like she says she can talk to dogs. Like what? She says she was raised by dog, kept by dogs for a while. Like the minute she, like, like going back to the waffle scene, the minute she's like, oh, my best friend's Charlie. He's a dog. You're like, oh, this girl has mental problems. That's really, that's really sad. But we need to get her help. I think you're missing the the point that these people have have a severe gambling addiction in themselves. And as soon as they can figure out that she can pick the ponies, they're going to be treating her just the same way that these other dogs did as well. Yeah, except instead of going outside, they're going to be like, you want to go to Disney? You want to go to Disney, Anne-Marie? All right, well, you know what you got to do. Talk to those fucking horses. Then we'll talk about it. And since this is a Don Blue film, they're not going to take her to Disney. They're going to go to Six Flags. Oh, you know it. <laughs> so at the end of our movie, so at the end of our movie, because Carface uh, got eaten by the big gay alligator, and uh, uh, Carface is now in heaven, 
And he then he rips off all of his angel garb. He then immediately winds his clock. He goes back to Earth. And I'm guessing he's going back to murder Itchy the dog and kidnap Anne-Marie, which is weird because Mm -hmm. the movie then ends where it begins, where Charlie's in heaven, Carface is on Earth, and nothing has really changed, which is why I go back and say that the the angel dog that started off is like, yeah, we know everything. This is all going to end up exactly where it started, so don't worry about it. That is a much more zen read of the film than I have. Uh, I look at it like, I, well, I guess we got to end it somehow. Yeah. And this is something. When when the, when the it, angel dog tells Carface, she says, touch the clock and you can never come back. Carface, Carface yells out her. He tells her to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> also, is she like, damn, it's never happened before. And now, like two and three days, I am really on a never coming back to heaven run. I, I am terrible, terrible at my job. I I have to bury these files <laughs> if I want to keep this cushy gig. And that's and that's the end of All Dogs Go to Heaven, a, a an awful awful children's movie that no child should ever see that that no adult ever should have made. You know, the the movie is almost summed up perfectly for me. In uh, what I think is the last line, if not one of the last lines, uh, Burt Reynolds has in the film, where as the credits begin to roll and music is playing, he says, hey, uh, I know it's dead up here. Uh, Doesn't mean the music uh, has to be. (laughs) And and then it turns into this ragtime song and you're just like, oh, for the love of shit. I hate everything about this movie. I hate how it looks. I hate how it sounds. It doesn't make any sense. They're they're the only character that's even remotely likable in the movie is the girl who is being at least psychologically abused. And that's that's no way to hang your hat on a film. No, it's not. If you want to watch a movie like that, I recommend uh Brooke Shields, what was it, Sugar Baby? Uh also George C. Scott. Uh, what was the name of that movie? Snuff movie, or essentially it was the old version of Nicolas Cage's Eight Millimeter. Right. It, it's just like, the, the, just like, do you enjoy uh, uh, movies where where children are are uh, taken advantage of for the most deviant, you know, salacious, awful behavior that human beings can commit? Well, you know, well, let's mix in, you know, some adorable dogs and some terrible songs. It's it, this movie's awful. It's just awful. I, I, I'll never watch it again. I'll never yeah. watch it again. I'll never see the sequel. The fact that there was a TV series somehow is, is beyond me. But yeah, it, it's just terrible. So um, that's all. That's all. Dogs go to heaven. So if you've never seen it, don't. If you have, um, I'm sorry. Um, you know, I, I, I wish there was some way that I could give you a hug and say. Things are going to be okay, but after this, I, I'm not sure that they are. You know, I, I can only say well done. Uh, I think this is probably the worst movie we're going to talk about in this run. Uh, I mean, Stroker Ace has a slight edge because of all the rape. But there were no kids involved in that one. <laughs> but Yeah, but that was not marketed to children. Yeah, w- and, and children were not being exploited in that. I mean, is, is a child's exploitation worse than sexual assault. I don't know. 
I'll leave. I'll I'm, leave. I'm I'll, not a professional. I'll leave that for the courts to decide. I mean, I can weigh in on that, but right. I've already gotten myself in enough trouble. So not only not only <laughs> did we hear that the fact that Burt Reynolds can cannot sing well in this, which kind of leads us into uh, part four of this series. Uh, which Bo, uh, would you care to uh, to kind of introduce that one or give us a tease into to, to next week's episode? Yeah. So next week we are going to be talking about the best little whorehouse in Texas, which I argue is the closest thing to a real movie we'll talk about in this entire run. All right. I, I'm I'm looking forward to to having that conversation. It, it may be the the, the maybe the closest thing to a real movie that we've we've seen thus far. In that it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has a protagonist and an antagonist. We have, you know, some sort of story arc or character development. I'm not saying that, you know, that's a whole lot to ask for. And in fact, I think that's the bare minimum that you should have for any film. We've just yet to really touch on that in the first three films that we've seen in this series. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's been a real rough ride uh, so far. Uh, the the rumble seat of this particular Trans Am uh, ha- has been uh, firm and and with a, a, a potential spring sticking out. Um, but I'm I, yeah I'm very excited to talk about this little whorehouse. I think there there is actually good stuff to talk about within that film and also Jim Neighbors. Fair enough. All right. Well, we will leave it uh, till then. So uh, we'll uh, we'll hold off uh, further discussions until the next episode. And uh, we'll see what the future has to uh, to bring uh, when it comes to the best little whorehouse in Texas. Excellent. See you next week. Next week. week. All right.